I'm Liz Hirshnoff-Tolley, and welcome to the Capital Coffee Connection podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to really talk about the heart and the humanity of our elected leaders. We are not here to talk about politics and policy, but we're really here to hear stories and to learn about these incredible leaders. As I was thinking about today, I was remembering that I had received an invitation about six months ago to meet this new leader. And I looked at the photo and I thought, oh my God, he is my kid's age. And I said to myself, wow. Um, and then of course I Googled him and very impressive. And I went to the event and what I learned was not so much about the political part, but about the passion, about this energy, this young energy, uh, a young person who wants to make a difference feels passionate about helping and was willing to put himself out there to become an elected leader, which some of us think is just so easy, but it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time and it's really a lot of personal sacrifice. And so I left there really feeling inspired because I found that this leader actually represented my children's interests, my children, their generation, and he spoke to what is important to them. So, um, I am excited because we have Congressman Maxwell Frost. He is from Orlando, Florida, which is Florida's 10th congressional district. And the best city in Florida. And the best city in Florida for a lot of those folks that do like Disney and the rest. <laughs> I agree. And in all fairness, a lot of people have moved into that area in the last no. years. It's a, it's a lot of great things happening. And he is the first member from Generation Z to be elected to the... Uh, Congress. And I know that in his DNA is pretty much as an organizer, as someone that speaks with people and brings people together. So I want to welcome Congressman Maxwell Alejandro Frost. And thank you for being here. And I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. So what I'd like to do is go back to the beginning of time. You're young, so it's not that long ago. But you have really an interesting story because you talk very, and what I love is that you're also very authentic and honest and open about where you come from, your biological family, the family that raised you. Could you talk a little bit about who you are, where you come from? And then I'll just say this, which is that you wrote, or you said in one of your speeches and maybe in many, but you said, I am who I am because somebody loved me. And at the bottom of all that is you have a lot of people that love you, but can you talk about who you are and yeah. where you come from. So I I say that a lot because, you know, throughout my life, I always wrestled with the question of identity. Right. And I uh, I was adopted at birth. And so that actually played a, a, it's weird, it played a huge part of my life and it also played a very insignificant part of my life. I was always wrestling with figuring out, you know, who I was culturally, who I was as a, as a black person. I wrestled with blackness a lot. Um, in uh, in elementary school, middle school, even high school. I didn't really come to terms with my blackness until early high school. Um, I grew up in a like white suburban neighborhood, um, but with like a Cuban family, you know, um, except my dad, but you know, he is a steel pan player. And so brings a lot of the culture of music. So there's always a lot of culture in my household. And it was always something I was just trying to figure out where do I fit in. But at the same time, I also was very indifferent about learning more about it. So I was always struggling with it, but didn't make an effort to learn about it. I think part of it was, you know, I love my parents. I was adopted at birth. And so I never knew my biological mother. 
my parents would always give me the opportunity to to learn more. They'd always say, Maxwell, do you want to know more? Do you want to know more? And they would they were telling me this, you know, early on, seven, eight years old. So they were always very open and honest. And I always said no. I still to this day I'm not sure why. I think I was just very happy and I didn't want to confuse things and I didn't really care to know to be honest. Um and I think it's really valid. Because of that, as life continued, you know, I've always, even from an early age, have always had these kind of wild ideas of things I just wanted to do. And there was always people in my corner to help me do it. Obviously, first my parents, then my friends. You know, my, my best friends in the world are, we're friends and we hang out and, you know, screw around or whatever, but we'd also do projects together. That was like a big part of my friendship with all my friends from high school. We would plan music festivals and, and events and, you know, parties and just different things. We'd plan things together. And so after winning this election, I really, I've always known this, but I really realized that I am who I am because somebody loved me from the inception, from being adopted at birth. And the fact that by blood, I know no family, right? Um, I've, I've spoken to my biological mother on the phone, but that's the, that's the extent of where that's gone. And so my, my family is my family. They're not, they're not my friends, but in a weird way, all my best friends are also my family. Yeah. Almost to the degree. The great that you Yeah, exactly. And it, and it hits a different level for me because it's, it's kind of similar to my parents. Just they've been around since birth, right? Yes. And so that's not to diminish my parents, but the, like my friends and people that I value really play a huge role in my life. And I think that's true for all of us. But I, I would argue that specifically, I think for adoptees too, it, it just hits a little different. And um, and I think that's why I'm here today, why I'm doing this interview. Yeah. And talk a little bit about your grandmother, because I know that you were very close with her. Yes. Yeah. And she came as an immigrant from Cuba. And you spent a lot of time with her. Yes. And um, yeah. talk about her, a little bit her journey and what that meant to you and maybe what she imparted to you. As yeah. So she came from Cuba in the late 1960s during the freedom flights. Essentially, your family would apply to come to America um, and they would pull names out randomly, pull numbers. And then if your number was called, you'd get a phone call. They say you need to be at the airport in 24 hours. You could bring one suitcase up. All of your your bank was frozen and then the government would see, seize the money. So you didn't have any money, uh, but you had a suitcase and you had to have a sponsor on the other side. So my mom, my aunt, my grandpa, who passed away a long time ago, and my grandma, Zenaida, but I called her Yeya, um, was was on that plane. You know, my- What year was that? Do you remember? 1967, eight or nine. Okay. <laughs> One of those three. Yeah, yeah, it was the end of the 60s. And um, my mom was like 12 or 13 years old. And, you know, they, when I think a lot about the story of immigrants, I think a lot about the story of work. My grandma came here, she went to Hialeah, to Miami, worked three factory jobs and making like like 30 cents, 40 cents an hour or something like that. And uh, with no protections or anything. In fact, the last week, she passed away last year and the last months of her life, I spent a lot of time talking with her in the hospitals during the campaign. So for a long time, my life was just Ubering and campaign. When my grandma started dying, I stopped Ubering and just applied to a ton of credit cards and said, I'm just, I'm, I need to be in the hospital. So I started being campaigning and then go to the hospital. And that was kind of my life for like seven months. And, uh, but I spent a long time learning about things, things I never asked her before. Um, she has stains all over her arms, you know, from specifically from the work she did. 
um, and Hylia in these factories manufacturing lamps and things where she's just using her bare hands. It was very powerful to learn that story because she had no animosity or hatred towards it, which for me, I, I was hearing the story and I'm just getting pissed off to be She wasn't resentful. She wasn't resentful. And she said, I'm not resentful because look at you and look at Meritza, my mom, and, and look, look at this. And it's both admirable and very sad. She did not deserve to be treated that way. But because the American dream is oftentimes held as a carrot in front of immigrants, um, they're willing to go through things that they shouldn't have to go through. And they're also leading places that are also so challenging and so it's, difficult. Yeah, exactly. That it, it, you, you have to believe if you move forward, something better shall come. Exactly, exactly. And, and it did. Um, but she also went through things she shouldn't have gone through. It. Both things can be true at the same time. And, and you know, I learned that a lot. My, uh, my mother's a special education teacher of 37 years. And so my grandma always took a lot of pride in that. But yeah, I, I miss her a lot. We're, we're, we're really close because the first two years of my life, she raised me. She moved from Miami. She was like, bye to my grandpa for like two years. She came to Orlando because my mom was a teacher. My mom's a teacher. So she'd be working, you know, nine to nine to six or seven sometimes. And then my dad's a musician who would work in the evening and sometimes be working in the morning too. So they went home a ton. And so she was really one of my parents. And I just, I'll go back and, and it's a beautiful story. And I think grandparents have a lot to offer. And, you know, it's a community that raises kids really throughout our country. But just to point out that like, it is hard work to become an elected person. You were driving Uber so that you, you weren't taking Uber, you were driving Uber yeah, yeah. to make money so that you could then be able to survive and then to run. And that's like a lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't think people realize sometimes like the sacrifice of just running and you had no guarantee at that moment that you would win, but yeah. you believed in yourself. And obviously you had, you know, support of family yeah. in that process. I well, that's, and that's such an important part. Yeah. Because I, I, you know, I like to talk about what I went through. I also like to, to say, I also recognize the immense privilege I had in being able to do it. Yes. Two things I think about. Number one, there was a there was a breaking point for me where I was houseless for two months. I took all my savings and I got, I had like three grand in the bank. I spent it all on Airbnb for a month, like all of it. I was left with like a hundred bucks, but I was confident. I was like, you know, at the end of this, I'll have, you know, I would have figured it out somehow. Yeah. And then it came to that and didn't figure it out. And then for a month, I was couch surfing. But um, then I was able to get it figured out. So I I feel like I would have dropped out if I had kids in a family. And that's a big problem mm -hmm. because we need people who come from working class backgrounds with families, with kids. Like, I think we need mothers and fathers, parents in, in the halls of Congress more and more. Um, and we're seeing it more and more. And there's a change happening. So there's that, and I had privilege in just being 20, you know, at the time, 24-year-old guy who can slum it out, and it was horrible and not something anyone really should have to do. But it's also the reality of so many people in this country. Yes. And then the other thing is that I had a net, right? I, I had a net, um, and I knew that if it really came down to it, that I would be okay because of my family, because of my friends, because of the people who love me, because of my staff, you know? And that's something that not every candidate gets, is that yeah. net. And so um, I also recognize that. And you're a musician also. So your father inspired you, and I understand he got you starting on the drums very early. Yes, yeah. I Music was always in the house. And my dad used to go to my biological mother's house and play music. I like put the, uh, what do you call it, the headphones on her stomach. You know, 
Yeah, that, yeah. So he's he's a really big musical guy, and that's his full time job. I always like to tell people, um, it's not like a side thing or a hobby for him. That's been his thought. It's his life. Um, I I a fun fact is my dad used to play with Tiny Tim. He was Tiny Tim. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but either way, then he stopped going on tour and started just staying at home when I was born. And so music was always in the house. My dad's studio, kind of like the room we're in now, was in the middle of our house. So always music, always steel pans, always his, fr- to play. always his friends coming over to record and setting up a, a vocal booth in the kitchen. And, you know, and everyone was okay with it. My mom was okay with it. We were all okay with it. And that was just, we loved it. And so I always knew I wanted to play something. And it wasn't until, I think I struggled with figuring out what to do. And then it was still the second grade during Christmas where I wake up on Christmas morning, I have a drum set. And my dad was like, here's the thing, like, it try it out. And it wasn't just the drum set. I mean, it was great to have the drum set, but it was also important because my dad got me private lessons, you know, with um, a guy, uh, uh, Mr. Parker, who ended up being my percussion instructor in middle school and high school at the art school I went to. So my dad, I think he had a plan in mind, but it was it was great. And, and I started playing in the second. And you were in a band in high school? I was in many bands in high school, okay. like many band nerds who go through a few bands. But the the two that I spent a lot of time in is one was called The Charter, which was like a pop rock, you know, indie garage band kind of thing. And um, and I loved it. And, we, you know, we were we were town town famous, you know, in the town of Kissimmee. Exactly. And then um, Seguro Que Si, which was a salsa band that I had. It started off as just a jazz jam and then we made it to a salsa band. And then I ended up applying for us to perform at the inauguration for Barack Obama in 2012, 2013. And we ended up getting accepted. And um, and I had to, I, it's a whole story, but I had to raise like almost 20 grand and I was, get there. to get there. So I had, I was a fellow for Obama on his campaign and I really wanted to go to the inauguration with my dad. So I just went on the website of the presidential inauguration and I'm looking and I find at the bottom it says, apply to perform and I was like I have a band so I just applied not thinking I was like 15 and then I get an email that says you've been you you moved on to the next round you need a recommendation letter from your U.S. senator I've never done anything in politics before so I just start calling Bill Nelson's office every day for like a month and then I get the letter and then we send it in and then one day I'm in class I get a call from Washington D.C. I like lie to my teachers I can go out use the restroom I answer the call and they, they said, you've been accepted and we're excited to have you. You're going to be the first salsa band in the history of our country to perform at the inaugural parade, but we won't, we're not paying for anything. And so I went to my principal and I went to my parents. I'm like, we need this money in, in like three weeks. We need $20,000. And they all, even my parents, they all said, that's impossible. Like, good job, but th- we can't do this. Yeah. You should like decline. And. That or like broke. that is not happening yeah well it broke me like it was like thanksgiving break or christmas break yeah. one of the breaks and i was like crying like a lot you know i was like we have the opportunity to do this thing so my friends and i made letters and we like went business to business i think it was during thanksgiving break or christmas break and we went business to business and we were like if you can sponsor us or give us a check we will shout you out you know we're, we're trying our best and then i ended up we ended up raising 10 grand alone just us and then when I got back to school after the break, I called the principal's office and they were like, your parents told me you've raised half of it. We can help with the other half. And then we went and did it. So, say we don't get to see that, you know, as a special place. In yeah. Which means in Spanish, it means like either hell yes 
or of yes, of course. Yes. You know, like that. That's the more literal translation. Right. Yeah, translation. You became an organizer at that moment, or you were already. I mean, you understood that it was really going person to person and appealing to people. And you, your background then was as an organizer. I mean, you did organizing for March for Our Lives, campaigns, ACLU, gun safety, things that you're passionate about. Yeah. What is it about organizing that is in you and that you also understand? And again, it's not about which side, but organizing is about getting people to yeah. come together. So what is it about that that is you're talented at it and you're attracted to it? I think the genesis of it um, was the shows, like putting together shows. I was just doing an interview where I was talking about, they were like, you see a connection between political organizing and producing a show. And I was like, oh yeah. Uh, remember the first show I put together at my school was like a lunchtime concert, right. you know, coordinating everybody and everything like that feels a lot like coordinating on my team or coordinating organizers. Right. And then going out and like, you know, street teaming it. So passing out flyers, convincing people to come, convincing people to stay, convincing people to invite their friends. I mean, that's what you do as an organizer too. So it's not exactly the same, but I think that was the genesis of me getting into p producing things. Or, you know, and, and helping to bring people together around something. And for me, it started off as events or a concert or this and that. Then I started getting into organizing after the Sandy Hook shooting. And I came back and started organizing on my campus with the same friends that would do the shows with me, talking to the same people who would come to the shows. So it was like very, uh, there was like a direct connection there. That's where I got started. And, you know, I volunteered in high school. I volunteered and worked, um, Volunteered for, for Bernie, for Charlie Crist, who ran for governor the, the first time, or yeah, this technically the second time, and, uh, and Obama. And so when I graduated high school, I get a call from someone who was an organizer on one of those campaigns, and so they were like, hey, I got a job on the Hillary campaign. Um, you should come down and be a full-time organizer. You just graduate high school. You can come down to Fort Myers. We're going to pay you like 1500 bucks, 1600 bucks a month. And I was like, yo, I'm going to be rich. This is crazy. <laughs> I have a full-time job. It, and it was a great opportunity, right. which is why I'm here today. So I went to Fort Myers and that's where I started my political career really was being a field organizer in Florida in Fort Myers. I always said after that campaign, because I moved my college online, I said, I'll go back to college in person. And then I got a call to do a race in Flatbush for city council races, the field uh, as a GOTV uh, uh, director. Right. And then I got another call. Then I got another call. And I just never ended up stopping, you know. And, and then I got to a point where I stopped doing campaigns for candidates. And I worked at the ACLU, which changed my life because I had so much fun not working for a candidate. Not that I don't, I love candidates. I'm, you know, I'm a candidate. But it's just so different to, like, organize on an right. issue that has a broad coalition of people you might disagree with. And you were a, a victim of gun violence. Sur yeah, sur so the, yeah, yeah. So my point is that there was something not only that it was Sandy Hook, but yeah. then it also became something that was personal to you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not that the other isn't tragic, but that it really touched your life. It became yeah. I mean, it was always very close to me after Sandy Hook. Three years after Sandy Hook, Pulse nightclub happens where we lose forty nine people at a nightclub that was very close to the club. I was working at a club at that point. I was. I was, it was right after high school when I was working as a backlight tech at a music bank. That hit our community obviously very hard. And then that Halloween, there was a shooting in downtown Orlando that I was, I was in. And so um, that all happened very quickly where it hit home and then it 
was hit me and my friends and where we were. It just, you know, lit the fire. Is again, not politic, but was the whole idea of gun safety, was that what got you to go from being an organizer to deciding to run? Yeah, uh, it was one of the things. Okay. It was one of the things. Because by that point, I had now worked at the ACLU, March for Our Lives, and all these different campaigns. And I kind of brought in the issues that I cared about and learned about and was involved in, um, especially at the ACLU, because my whole job there, I had a very interesting job there. The The first year I worked in Florida on Amendment 4 was pretty cut and dry. And it, it was one of the proudest things I've ever done in my life. The second part of it was a program called Rights for All where this is when we had a million people running for president and the aclu had the good idea hey one of these people will probably be president probably be trump we should get everybody on the record on civil rights and civil liberties and help push people in the early primary states so i ran the program in south carolina and i lived in charleston for a year and um so i had the opportunity to meet everybody who was running i had meetings with them and then we'd also bird dog them so it was a two two-part thing and um and it was just an honor and a great you know time to do that job. But I I learned a ton and you know had to become an expert in um, incarceration and, and decarceration, especially at the federal level, um, uh, reproductive rights and reproductive justice, immigrants' rights, immigrant justice. So you had to know what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then while you were running, did you just start to see that young people were inspired that you were a young person running? Oh yeah, I mean especially when we first got started. And I really didn't have staff. It was like my campaign manager, Kevin and I, it was just us for like two months. And so everything we did was very heavily volunteer based. It was the entire time, but especially at that point. Yeah. And it was all like young people that I had organized with, you know. Yeah. In March for Our Lives or Black Lives Matter or a lot of my music friends helped out a lot, to be honest, in the in the in the first part of it. So yeah. What was the best advice you've received and the worst advice you've received? I would say the worst advice I've got, I'll, this this like a broad thing, yeah. is I went to a very competitive high school, middle school, right? I mean, you would get kicked out if your grades got low. You would also get kicked out if you got really bad at your instrument. And it was more, have you seen the movie Whiplash? No. You should watch it for you. Okay. But either way, it, it, it paints a picture that I think was very jarring for people about kind of the realities of being in band at a very high level. And um, it's not as intense as that movie. Like there was the teacher wasn't hitting me and stuff. Um, but that level of scrutiny and that level of like, I need to be the best. I need to show up and play my part right. I need to practice. Like was is that was definitely a thing at my school. And it was a very intense experience. And I also had a great time. And it was loving and graceful, but also very intense. So a lot of the advice you would get from folks there was very much like on this grind culture. Where you like work yourself to the bit, and um, and it wasn't really sustainable, and it and that really fueled a lot of anxiety I had, especially post high school. Of you know, even though I was working full time on campaigns, I wasn't where I thought I was going to be in life. Um, and you're so young still. And I was still so young. I'm like 19. You know? And you don't have your future figured out. I'm 19. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, but that like grind culture that is in a lot of students, like a lot of my younger friends who just graduated college like last year the year before a lot of them are going through this where they've been fed this lie of like ride yourself to the bit and after you graduate college you'll have a career in your degrees in your in your field but it just doesn't work like that at least right now too i mean 
right now my generation's on track to hold between like 10 and 15 careers and jobs in their lifetime not just like gigs like i did this gig at like jobs yeah and so it's just different now and so it wasn't until i threw that out i had to unlearn that yeah and i had to give myself a lot of grace and it helped me here the the best advice my dad can, can be an, can be an intense guy he comes from the military uh, but what you would tell me like every morning is something we all know is hope for the best plan for the worst yeah and that's kind of the motto that's like the motto of my life it was the motto of the campaign so it's a little, little cliche but it's so true but it's in you and it works yeah exactly okay so now we're gonna have like rapid questions you can answer you don't have to answer yeah. but they're just ones for people to get to kind of little get to know you in small yeah. ways or maybe big ways mm-hmm. what is your favorite sound my favorite sound the vibraphone which is like uh you know what a vibraphone is no you know what a marimba is yeah it's it's like a marimba but it's smaller it's metal bars not wood bars you've heard it before yeah and um and when i was in jazz band one year there was a guy younger than me who really practiced and he beat me out of being the drummer and i was no longer in the top band and because our school was so competitive i was like i gotta be in the top band and i don't i didn't think i could beat him on drum set so I auditioned, I learned vibraphone over the summer. Oh, that's amazing. So I could be in the right. band on vibraphone because there wasn't another vibraphonist, but I knew I had to be good to be in the band. So my dad and like taught me and I, and I knew piano, so it was a little easier. So either way, the vibraphone, I fell in love with it very quickly, like over a summer. And um, I haven't played in vibraphone so long, but I think it's a very unique sound. I love it. Beautiful. Favorite color? Um, sky blue. Favorite smell? Rain or like after rain, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's good. And what is your zodiac sign? I'm a Capricorn. Are you a Capricorn? Mm-hmm. But you are a Capricorn, character wise? I'm told, yes. Yes. Okay. I get reminded often. Yes. <laughs> and who is your biggest cheerleader? My parents, my family, my my best friends. I would like put them in the same category. Yeah. It's like your community. Your mm-hmm. um, if you arrived at a desert island and one meal was there, what would it be that your favorite meal to see? I mean, not being practical about being stuck on a desert island. Uh, probably sushi. Sushi's like my favorite food. Okay. Sushi and like breakfast sandwiches. Okay. You know. Yeah. Sort of like that breakfast sandwich kind of like The Bachelor, I'm on a candidate kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Something good for the rest of the day. Yeah. yeah. Is there a place in the world that you haven't traveled to that right now is like on the top of your list? It's actually Cuba because my mom wants to go back because she hasn't been back since she was a kid. And Cuba has some very petty laws where, like, if you left, it's harder for you to come back than for me to go. And obviously, there's a lot of politics associated, which I won't get into. But I do, I always envisioned me going to Cuba with my grandma and my mom. My grandma passed away. So now I imagine myself going to Cuba with my mom and my aunt and, like, my sister. Yep. Um, So probably there. At some point. You'll get there. You'll get there. You're still young, and hopefully you'll get there sooner than later. If you had to do a household chore, what would be your favorite household chore? I like doing dishes because I like the warm water. Oh, nice. You know. We're going to do a little game, Kids Marry Trash. It's got other names. Okay, okay. You know the game? Yes, I'm familiar. So I'm just going to ask you a few things and just, you know. I feel like this is one people get in trouble on. Yeah, but if you, I don't think you'll get in trouble. Okay, okay, okay. And if you are, it will give you, you could just take the fin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're going to relax, which I don't know if you have time for, Netflix, reading, meditating. I mean, I'd like to say reading or meditating, but it, I think in real life it would be Netflix. 
Netflix, okay. Or like some streaming service. Yeah, I hear you. Um, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast. That's the one you'd marry. Yes. That's your favorite meal. I, I would say, like, I love a good breakfast sandwich, you know, in the morning. I'm, I'm thinking about my the breakfast sandwich I'm going to have after this. Okay, know. okay, good, 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 good. Not to rush you. No, 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 but like, I, yeah. I love it. I also love dinner. I'm very particular about my meals. I don't like to do like working lunches and stuff wow. because I kind of like to sit alone and eat right. or sit and like talk, not about work. Yeah. Because I feel like meals are kind of one of the only acceptable breaks you get in the work day. And I've always felt very strongly about that. Got it. Movies, drama, rom-com, or thriller? I would say drama. Okay. And sports, basketball, baseball, football. Not a huge sports guy. Um, I will say I watched my first full football game, the last Super Bowl, like last year with my dad. Yeah. And I've always hosted Super Bowl halftime show parties. I get for the reason. You, yeah. But you skip the both sides on the other side. Yeah, like my friends would come over and we wouldn't watch the game and then we'd watch the halftime show. And then this is my first time watching the game and my dad got the opportunity to like be a dad and explain the rules. And I and it was cool. Like I I understand football now. So maybe if, I'd say football. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The last question I ask: What does joy mean to you? And how do you share your joy? Being a gun violence organizer is very difficult because oftentimes the the peaks of our of our work where most people care about it, it's like directly connected to people die. I mean. And um, it's not so recently that we've had some great wins that, you know, people think about it without thinking about the death. And so I've always found joy in, in the arts, to be honest, and in community. And um, that's really what joy means to me is, is are those things. And the arts just play such a huge role in my life. And it's part of the reason why I try to integrate it into the work. One, because I think, I think it's good politics. I, I think it's a good way to help change, uh, help open hearts and minds, but also a little selfishly, it's me inserting self-care into the work that I do where I don't have a ton of opportunities to take care of my mental health. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's important. I think everybody should do it. Yeah. And I think that if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't take care of others, even if you have this official, you know, role. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I do also agree that music and the arts are something that brings everyone together. There's no, there's no determination of yeah. background or religion or political status. Everybody is parked together exactly. and enjoys. And um, I hope that you will find some time to play the drums. Yes, I do find time to play it. Okay, good. Uh, and, and keep doing and thank you. And I say thank you because I, I know as a parent that it is so important that we have people to represent my children's generation, future generations, because we obviously, all of us want to make sure that we carry on for the future. Yeah. And you are currently living the future for many of us because of being so young. And so I want to thank you for giving up a lot, but also keeping grounded and, um, and for sharing yourself. And I hope that people who get to hear this today are going to really get to appreciate what a special person you are. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And we look forward to uh, seeing what you do. Hi, it's Liz. Please join me every Tuesday for coffee to talk about heart and humanity with our elected leaders. Ciao.